Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, if you have a Bible, James chapter 1 this morning, James chapter 1. And if you need, need so, you can, hand, you can raise your hand, we'll get you a Bible. James chapter 1, and as you're opening up that, we are starting a new series this morning entitled Everyday Faith. Everyday Faith, a verse-by-verse study through the book of James. The book of James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Anybody familiar with the book of Proverbs? Proverbs is really kind of a collection of uh, wisdom for everyday living, isn't it? That's what it is. Anybody ever do the proverb of the day for their daily devotions? There's 31 proverbs, so it doesn't matter what month you fall in, there's a proverb to read. And so I want to encourage you, if you've never done that, it's so worth doing that you would read that on a daily basis, just Proverbs 1. Today is what uh, the 2nd of October, so you read Proverbs 2. And it's, uh, I did that for years and years and years, and Proverbs are ingrained in my mind uh, because of that. There's great wisdom in Proverbs, but... Like the book of Proverbs, there's great wisdom in the book of James, very much practical wisdom for Christians in everyday living. And uh, James uh, very much parallels what Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. There's so much that James references in the book of James relating to much of what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. James talks about things like trials and temptations, faith and works, taming the tongue, wisdom and worldliness, and patience and prayer. Uh, You can parallel the things that Jesus said. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted. James said it counted pure joy when you in trial encounter various trials. Jesus commanded us to obey instructions, his instructions, and James said that we are to be doers of the word. Jesus talked about the origin of where our speech comes from. James says, tame your tongue. Jesus said that we are, uh, we are, not, we are not of the world, but we are in the world. Uh, Jesus, uh, James tells us, he teaches us to be careful not to allow the world to rub off on us. Jesus taught us the importance of trusting him in hard times through endurance, patience, and prayer. James says very similar things. This book will help you incredibly follow Christ, and I'm super excited to go on this journey with you. Stand with me. We're going to begin by reading James chapter 1, and this morning we're going to look at the first eight verses. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all uh, without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and Lord, we ask you to just speak to us now. Lord, we surrender our hearts and we quiet ourselves before you, Lord. We pray distractions would be removed from us even now, Lord. And we would be ready to hear from you. 
And so we thank you, Lord. Thank you that you're going to move. You're going to speak powerfully to us through your spirit this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Immediately, when we open up the book of James, we're met with the author identifying himself as who? James. Wow. Mind-blowing thing, right? James. Now, what James is this? There's five different Jameses mentioned in the scriptures. Two of them were part of the original 12 disciples. One was the father of a man, Jude, who was part of the 12 disciples. We have James the Greater. James the Greater is the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. He is the apostle James. He was called, he was a fisherman with Peter and Andrew. James, the son of Alphaeus, little, no, little is known about him. James the Less, also known as James, the son of Mary and the brother of Joses. James, the father of Jude. And James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus. It's safe to say that we can rule out James Lowry from our congregation. That's probably not the James he's speaking of. I'm pretty sure about that. There's only really two that fit the bill when it comes to possibly writing the book of James, the Apostle James and James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, it's unlikely that it's the, the Apostle James uh, because uh, when this book was written sometime around 50 AD, James was dead. James died somewhere around 44 AD. He was beheaded by King Herod. Uh, we can read about that in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Um, then there is, the, the, the most likely candidate is James, the half-brother of Jesus, also known as James the Just, who 4th century church historian Eusebius said he was called that because of his outstanding virtue. Church tradition strongly suggests that it's this James, the half-brother of Jesus, that is the writer of the epistle James, James the Just. He was the leader in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, you know what his nickname was? Old Camel Knees. How'd you like that for a nickname, huh? Old Camel Knees. Why do you suppose that they called him Old Camel Knees? Eusebius writes, He alone was permitted to enter the holy place, for he wore not woolen but linen garments, and he was, listen, in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found upon his knees. Begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel. In consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. James was a powerful prayer warrior. Not only was he the half-brother of Jesus and he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but more importantly, James was a prayer warrior. James prayed for the sins of the people to be removed. He prayed for other people. He was focused on other people. Tradition goes on to tell us that James was the target of the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And he was thrown off the pentacle of the temple. And when he didn't die, then they stoned him to death. And as they were stoning James to death, he cries out the, the identical words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The book of James is probably the first book of the New Testament to be written. Here we find old camel knees identifying himself immediately 
as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? This is the humility of James here. Notice James doesn't say, I'm James, the son of Joseph and Mary. That would have brought him some clout, would it have not? Or he could have even went to the extent of saying, I'm James, the brother of Jesus. But he didn't do that. James didn't do that, and I think there's good reason for why he didn't. I'll talk about that in a minute. But James identifies himself as a servant of God. Now, we talked about this word servant here the last couple of weeks. In the Greek, it's doulos, and it literally speaks of somebody who's free, but then chooses to uh, give their rights and their freedoms over to a master and surrender themselves to become subservient of that person. They were a free person, but they wanted to, they, they, they wanted to surrender themselves under the mastery of someone else. And the Lord calls us his servants, his slaves, because we're to do the same thing. We're, to, we're people who are free that are to surrender ourselves to him and, you know, give all of our rights up in order to follow Jesus. James believed that Jesus was God. He indicates that in this text right here by using the word Lord. The word Lord in the Greek is kiros. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word which translates Yahweh. He believes that Jesus is God. He, he, he's not questioning that whatsoever. In fact, he makes that known right here. James wasn't always a servant of the Lord Jesus, though. James, in fact, uh, was very much stood in opposition of his brother for a good period of time, probably his entire ministry, until he died and rose again from the dead. John 7 records the sentiments of all of Jesus' siblings. Jesus uh, did have siblings, by the way. Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56 tells us he had at least four brothers and sisters, plural, so he had at least two sisters. So Jesus had at least six siblings in his family. Could you imagine being the sibling of Jesus? And your parents saying, why can't you just be like Jesus? I mean, is it that hard? I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard. He's God. I'm not, you know. But they didn't know that. Of course, we know the these, these apocryphal, the, the apocrypha, these writings say Jesus as a kid was fashioning things and all that, and I don't believe so. His brothers didn't believe fully in who he said he was. Wouldn't you think they would if he was doing these kinds of things? You see, his brothers rejected him, and in fact, uh, so much so that they kind of taunted Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 5. The, the, they basically are, they, they say to him, Jesus, we, we've seen you do miracles, but if you're who you say you are, they don't believe it. That's why they're saying it like that. If you are who you say you are, why don't you go into Jerusalem right now and just proclaim yourself as the Messiah? And he said, I'm avoiding Jerusalem because it's not my time. Because the Jews were trying to kill him at this time. But his brothers were taunting him, saying, Jesus, if you're everything that you say you are, mom says you're the greatest, why don't you just go into Jerusalem and, and show everybody who you are? And John chapter 7, verse 5, for, even, for not even his brothers believed in him. 
for not even his brothers believed in him. Maybe you're, you can relate to that. Maybe your siblings don't believe in your faith. Maybe your siblings, uh, you know, don't believe that you've truly become a Christian. Doesn't really matter, does it? What matters is that Jesus says you are. His brothers didn't believe in him, but there came a point where James surrendered his heart to the Lord. What we do know is that James, along with Jude, two of the four brothers at the very least came to know the Lord, and they're contributors to the, of the New Testament. How amazing is that? Their brothers were able to be used by Jesus in order to write the word of God. They were around Jesus more than anybody growing up. And they have much wisdom. And, and it's interesting that we find James's name listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 3 through 8, Paul talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He says, For I deliver to you as his first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then verse 7, then he appeared to James, his half-brother. Then to all the apostles, last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This qualifies James, the half-brother of Jesus, to be an apostle. And he was an apostle. He saw the risen Jesus. That was part of what, what the requirement was for an apostle. That's why I don't think that there are necessarily apostles in this day and age. Apostle in the sense of sent one, sure, we're all sent in that way. But apostle in the sense of that apostolic ministry that God had given primarily to establish the church, by the way. That authority. Now, this is the apostolic authority that we hold. It's the word of God. The Lord used the, the apostles to establish the faith through the writing of the word of God and through the teaching of the word of God. James was an apostle. And, uh, and, and, and he came to the Lord probably, probably as a result of Jesus's resurrection from the dead. And then we see 50 days later, we see James also, or at the very least, the brother, Mary and his brothers, plural, probably James and Jude at the very least, in the upper room waiting for power to come on high. So James, James began to follow Jesus. James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. In all humility, he makes that declaration. He goes on to tell us who he is writing to here. He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This means that James was writing to the cult in Pulaski called the 12 tribes. We know that purely. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There is a, there is a cult in Pulaski called the 12 tribes, but... That's not who he's writing to. He's writing to the people are like, what? Wait a second. Pulaski? Really? No. No. No, your Bible, please. No. The 12 tribes is a reference to who? The 12 tribes of what? Israel. Speaking of Jewish people. That's who he's talking about. But he's talking about specific 
Jewish people. He's talking about Jewish people that are of the dispersion. The dispersion mean the separation, the spreading of, of the Jewish people. It started back in the Old Testament when Assyria came against the ten, and took the ten tribes underneath them, dispersed them all over the world. Then Babylon came in in around 586, you know, B.C. or whatnot, and they then uh, took those from the two tribes from Jerusalem, Judea, and they spread them. That's when it started. But you see, all the way up until uh, Jesus shows up on the scene. You know, this is, I don't know, six, seven hundred years before Jesus. They're still dispersed. There's people all over the place, and the Jews are still dispersed today. They're still dispersed today. They're spread out all over the place. But James is writing to a specific group. He's talking to the dispersion, probably speaking of Jewish believers. We know that that's who he's talking to because uh, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 7, there was a made a reference to this. John chapter 7 verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So this is who James is writing to. He's writing around 50 AD or something and right out of the gate, James jumps in to the topic of trials. Oh, praise the Lord. The topic of trials, James uh, doesn't waste any time on pleasantries. He jumps right into the, the very topics that, he f that he's being inspired to write about. And the first thing that he talks about is trials. Hence the, mes the, the title of my message this morning, Understanding Trials. There's three things that I want to show you from this text relating to trials that I think will help us gain better understanding of them to gain better understanding of them. Namely, we'll learn how to respond to trials. Secondly, what God is doing in the midst of our trials. And finally, what we ought to seek to navigate through our trials well. First, our response to trials. Look at verse 2 with me. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, what the word trial, what does it mean? The word trial means testing. Maybe some of your versions say, uh, you know, when you meet uh, the, the testing of various kinds. It's speaking about testing. Some of your versions say temptations. That is not a good translation. That's not a good translation. And we know it's not a good translation because next week we're going to see that James says that God will tempt no one. He's not talking about temptation. He's talking about testing. And that is what a trial is. It's a test. In the Greek, it means to learn, to try and learn the nature or character of someone or something by submitting such to Thorough and extensive testing to test, to examine, to put to the test, examination, testing. I think you get the idea. It's about testing. That's the definition of what a trial is. It's a circumstance that's meant to test our faith. It's a circumstance that's meant to test our faith. Where do trials come from? Trials, we know that first and foremost, and this is super important that you understand this, God is in control, period. It's not God is in control, but it's God is in control, period. 
That means ultimately, no matter what the source of the trial is, whether it's the enemy coming after me like a roaring lion, whether it's because of this, the, the choices that I've made that, the, that I'm being corrected in that moment, or whether it's simply for, for my sanctification, the point of it is God is in control. We see that in the book of Job, right, where, where Satan wants to come against Job. Satan can't come against Job unless he has permission. So ultimately, God is in control of your trials, He's in control of how you're tested. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God is in control of the way that you're tested? Because I promise you that there are ways that would, would um, if you were tested in certain ways, that you wouldn't be able to get up from. I promise you that. But God is in control of our testing. And, you know, I, if, you know if you know anything about the Lord, he is so good to not reveal all of our wickedness at once, you know? I mean, it's like if God were just to really show us who we really are, we'd be like, dude, there's no point. I'm wicked. You know, I'm a horrible person, Lord. You know, but, but he doesn't do that. He is, he is gentle. He is patient. He wants us to grow. He's faithful. But man, does he want us to, to change and transform? And so he, he allows testing in our lives to show us our faith. Don't we think sometimes we're a little stronger than we are? Until we have a test that comes along. And then we're like, oh man, Lord, I thought I was stronger than that. And you know what the Lord's like? It's okay, man. We'll get it next time. What? What do you mean next time? Don't worry. There'll be a next time. You get to, you get to take this one again, baby. Oh yeah. God is in control of our testing. He's the, he has authority of what is allowed in our lives and how we are tested. Therefore, if God puts us to the test he, or allows us to be tested, he has good reason for it. He doesn't waste our suffering. He doesn't waste difficulties in our life. There is a reason for it. There's something that God wants to do. I love the Strong's Greek Dictionary comments. When God is the agent of testing, it's for the purpose of proving someone, never for the purpose of causing him to fall. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord is trying to prove us. He's trying to shape us. He's trying to encourage us to grow. He never means for it to cause us to fall. God has good intentions when he allows us uh, to go into trials. Who gets to go into trials? <laughs> Everybody gets to go into trials, even unbelievers. In fact, it's interesting that many unbelievers come to Christ as a result of a trial. That's my story. Anybody else's story in here? Result of a trial or something and the Lord put in your life and you came to know him? God is doing things in the midst of trials. Everybody goes through trials. Notice the word here, when you meet trials. It's not if, it's when, when the, this is a subjunctive mood, it means, and it demands reality. In other words, this isn't just a possibility, it's inevitable that you will meet various trials. All people in Christ and outside of Christ are going to face trials. It's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. Let me illustrate that by a show of hands. How many of you this morning are going into a trial. Something just popped up on your radar this last week and it's a trial for you. Or how many of you are uh, in the middle of a trial? You, you're presently been dealing with some 
issue in your life that the Lord is working through with you? Or how many of you are just coming out of a trial and, and you, you're over the hump and you see that the, the Lord has, has done his work in there? Anybody? Anybody in one of those categories there? <laughs> yeah. I think everybody should be raising their hands here because that's all of us. We're either going into a trial in the middle of a trial or we're coming out of a trial. Amen? That, that we are all, we are guaranteed trials in life. You don't need to go to seminary to know how to become like Christ. God just puts you in the school of trial. And then he shows you how to be like Christ. Why does it surprise us? Why does it surprise us when we encounter these various trials? Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12, it should not. Listen to this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. I don't understand, Lord. Why am I going through this right now? What is going on here, Lord? No big deal. Just a little testing. Just a little testing of your faith. Why does that surprise you? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. It shouldn't surprise us. We are in a fallen world, of course, and there is much trial as a result of that. But God is trying to make us more like Jesus. And I say this all the time. We pray that. Do we mean it? Do we mean, Lord, make me more like Jesus? Okay, I have to put you in the furnace, though. Is that okay? I mean, he's not asking for your permission, but, you know, we pray this prayer, and then we wonder how come we, we immediately were met with some sort of a trial. And God is refining us. God is doing something, and it should not, should not uh, surprise us, or we shouldn't think strange of it when we are tested by the Lord not only are we going to have trials, but notice this, they are various in nature. This is great. Listen, God isn't into cookie-cutter trials. God wants to give you unique trials, so you get all kinds of them. It's a variety. You're like, oh, I want the variety pack. I'd like to try the variety pack of trials, Lord. Thank you for that. Hey, sometimes they come multiples at a time even. This is incredible. We get to face all these kinds of trials. There are, there are various kinds of trials because we are unique and different people. And although maybe the premise of the trial is the same as a relationship or it's pride or it's something that God is doing in your life, that the base is the same, but it works, it out, it works itself out very uniquely in our lives. And God is, God is allowing what he allows. He, 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 he only allows what he wants in your life at, at the time he wants it in your life. Our trials are somewhat unique. Again, as perhaps it's a relationship, health issues, job losses, huh? Anybody? When uh, your, your boss comes in and tells you, you know, uh, you're laid off 10 minutes later, you're like, oh man, this is great. Another trial that I, how is your faith in that moment? You gonna trust the Lord or are you gonna freak out? These are the kind of things that the Lord, these kind of various trials that the Lord allows in our life. And what are we supposed to do as a result? Count it, not just some joy, but count it all joy. Count it all joy. What this doesn't mean is that we should jump up and down in jubilee because we're entering another trial. That's not what it means. 
It's that we should realize the benefit of the trial and be looking to the end and what God is trying to do in us. He's trying, he's meant it for our good. He's trying to do something in our lives. God's up to something. Albert Barnes, theologian, said that there were, they, speaking of who James was writing to, they were to regard trials not as a subject of sorrow, but of gladness and joy. And they were called to pass through trials, for if born in a proper manner, they would produce the grace of steadfastness. And this was to be regarded as an object worth being secured, even by much suffering. Do you consider your trials all joy in that sense? That you know that God is at work in your life and that he's going to shape and transform you through it if you let him. And that's exactly what he'll do through the process. Literally, the word joy, it means gladness. Be glad. Be glad in the Lord. Uh, the, 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 The idea of joy, as you know, many of you know, that It's not circumstantial. It's not based on what's going on in my life. Joy is supposed to be a constant. It's a gladness in Christ. It's a gladness in the Lord. I'm so glad that Christ saved me. I'm so glad that he's my Lord. I'm so glad that he's this and that he's that, that he's everything that I need. I'm glad. That doesn't mean I'm happy. Oh, happiness is a completely different word. Our English word is is inept in a lot of ways, and in particular when it comes to this concept of joy and happiness. A lot of people lump them into the same thing. They're not the same thing. Joy is gladness regardless of circumstances. Happiness is, is a happiness as a result of circumstances. Happiness comes from the old, Greek, uh, the old uh, English word happenstance. Happenstance, it means when things are going great in my life, circumstances are good, I'm happy. When they're not, I'm not. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy, on the other hand, is not circumstantial. We are to consider it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials. This is a decision that we get to make. Right out of the gate, God says you can choose to have joy in no matter what the trial is in your life. You can choose to be glad in the moment, looking to Christ and what he's trying to accomplish in your life. How are we supposed to do that? Well, it comes as a result of understanding what God is doing through our trials. What God is doing through our trials. That's our second point. James goes on here and he tells us, what God is, why we should count it all joy in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James tells us what God is doing in our trials in verses 3 and 4 here. Listen, we can't fully grasp why we are to count it all joy until we know why we're facing these various trials. Until we understand what the Lord is doing. Contrary to popular belief, listen to this. Trials are not the result of a bad God. Trials are not the result of a bad God, but of fallen people and a fallen world. Why do I say that? 
Because automatically, one of the first things that a person says when tragedy happens or, you know, whatever, they look back on the, through the corridors of history and they talk about all the, the, you know, tragic things that have happened. They said, now, now, why would, a, why would a good God allow these kind of things to happen? Why would a good God allow you to go through these things as if God's the one on trial? As if it's God is the one that we're here to persecute. Prosecute, persecute. We already persecuted him. We're going to prosecute him now. He's not the one on trial, folks. He is good. He is good. And in fact, the fact that there is, that, that we even have breath in our lungs today says he's good. The fact that our world, even as crazy as it might seem to you, uh, is only as good as, it, good as it is because his hand is on it. Because if he were to remove his hand, it would be not good. Not, not be good in the slightest uh, idea of good. God isn't the one on trial. We are. And he'll show us through the testing of our faith where we stand with him. He's that good. He's that good that he doesn't pretend that we're somewhere we're not. He doesn't lie to us and tell us, oh, yeah, you're good, you know. You, you're you're going to be okay when we're not going to be okay. Oh, yeah, you look just like my son Jesus when we don't look like his son Jesus at all. He doesn't say those things to us. He doesn't lie to us. He's honest with us, and oftentimes he speaks the loudest to us through our trials. He demonstrates. You know, we talk about examine your heart to see whether you're in the faith. And we're supposed to be considering that on a daily basis walking you know you can have security in your salvation that's not what it's what I'm talking about I'm talking about are you practically walking out your faith daily are you walking out your faith where are you at in your faith I mean the world around us is falling apart where are you at where are you at you, you afraid are you freaking out are you making preparations to care for yourself alone where's your faith I remember my brother, we, I, I owned a business in, uh, uh, years ago, and we lost 50% of our business overnight. And, um, and I was just in process of, this is, this is I, I, was, I, I was in process, I planted this church, and I was uh, getting ready to start the church actually out of my house and stuff, and we lost 50% of our business overnight, and I started freaking out. Oh, man, what are you going to do? We got all these employees, we got this building, what are we going to do? And my brother, who's, he's a believer, but, it was, but, but I wouldn't say that he, he is uh, super devout or anything. He said, Tim, where is your faith? Talk about a, the Lord right into the heart. Yeah, you're right, what am I worried about? God's in control, man. He's got my life in his hands. He's going to work out these details. You know what he was doing? He's showing me where my trust was in, what my focus was on. And man, I'm glad he did that because I was easily able to correct myself in that moment and say, man, what am I doing? I can't focus on the horizontal. I got to get my eyes on the vertical, man. I got to get my eyes on Jesus. And, and uh, you know, as we look around the world today, we, we see the, the law that Gavin Newsom just passed in California for abortion. And, and, you know, as Christians, we don't freak out. We trust God. And we look at the, all the laws that are being tried to pass or people talking about what they're going to do to Christians or whatever. We're not worried about those things. 
Listen, we have one focus. Know Jesus and make him known. That's it. That's all we're called to do. We're not worried about anything else. And if you start living for something else, your faith will start to be, you'll start to place your faith in those other things. I promise you. I've done it. Don't do that. You got to keep hyper-focused on the Lord. Then when the testing comes, you can consider it pure joy because you understand the Lord is at work. He's doing something. What is he doing in the midst of our trials? He is trying to mature us. Notice, the testing of your faith. What, what our trials don't do is give us more faith. That's not what the purpose of them is. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. James is saying, God's not trying to give you more faith through your trials. God's trying to show you what your faith looks like in your trials. And then you can go to the word of God. You can grab a hold of those nuggets, you know, and the, those anchors that you need in your life. And you can repeat those things to yourself over and over and over again. And now your faith has grown as a result. But the trial is to show you where you are, not to increase your faith in, in the sense of the trial itself. The trial is the test. It's the purification. It's to show you what, what it sh it's to burn the dross off. It's to show the impurity of our faith so that we can grow in our faith. God, uh, trials are meant for our maturation. If you have one of our little bookmarkers, one of the eight pillars that we have in our church is maturation. That we're growing and the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis, that we are not content with how much we know about Jesus today, that we're going to pursue him with everything that we have on a daily basis, and we are going to grow. That, that, that's what this is all about. It's these reminders. that we Because why? We get sidetracked so easy. We get sidetracked, and we start living for something else. The Lord wants us to grow in him. And so he uses trials as a means to do that. For you know, this is not speculation, for you know. He's telling the Jews who have been dispersed, they've been through a few trials, they understand what now God is doing in the midst of them, so they know and we know that the testing of your faith then produces steadfastness. It's a, it produces something. You've gone through something in your life when God has allowed a, a trial in your life, you've gone through something that on the other end of it, you are now steadfast in that. Like, you know, you, you're, you're, God has grown you up and matured you in, in that particular area of your life that when you face it next time, it's like no biggie. I got this. I've seen this before. I've gone through this before. My faith has been built up in this particular area of my life, and now I'm going to face it uh, with my eyes fixed on Jesus and not on the waves. You know, and that's what God's intention is for us. It's to test our faith and to, it, to give us some steadfastness. That word means endurance. To endure. The ability to endure hardship. God uses trials to mature us in our steadfastness. And it, it, in, in the midst of our trials, it's requiring us to what? Trust the Lord. Don't we want him to just come in and take the thing right out of our lives immediately? Lord, if you would just take this out of my life right now, uh, man, that would be so awesome. And he's like, no, that's not what I want to do. I want you to get some endurance through this trial. I want you to, to get some more Christ-likeness through this trial. And if I just rip it from you in this moment, which I could do, but if I do that, I wouldn't be be, I wouldn't be a good God and I wouldn't be a good dad. 
Because good dads don't, don't uh, you know, relinquish on what, the, you know, trying to help their children grow in maturity. You know, he wants us to, do, to, to go through different things so that we can grow. He's telling us that we can know this. When we encounter a trial, we can know immediately, okay, I know, I know what this is about. This is about growth. It's about the Lord trying to mature me. And then we can quote things like we quote all the time. What the enemy means for evil, God means for good. God is in the middle of something. God works out everything for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. God is doing something in the midst of the trial, and I'm going to trust him. I know this. How do you know this? It's called practical knowledge. It's because you've gone through it. Anybody gone through a couple trials? Then you know what God is trying to do. He's trying to produce steadfastness in you. Paul understood this. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul who knows what it means to be in trials. And he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through, 14, 7 through 12, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul knows trials, but check this out. He goes on in verse 16. Listen to what he says. So we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart when we encounter these things. Through, though our, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We don't lose heart, Christian, when we encounter these various trials because we, we know that God is doing something. Therefore, we embrace them and we count it all joy as we look to the end result of that trial. And that is more Christ-likeness, to become more like Jesus. Understand that your trials, whatever they are, they're momentary in the scheme of, scheme of eternity. They're momentary. These momentary afflictions. This too shall pass. One day, that trial's going away. It might last your entire life until you breathe your last breath. But that's like a sliver. Life is a vapor. In the scheme of eternity, this momentary affliction is not to be counted, not, not to be considered in comparison to what we are uh, being prepared for, that eternal weight of glory. God is preparing us through these momentary afflictions, through the trials that we find in our lives. He is shaping and forming us uh, for eternity, folks. We don't look to the scene. Our solution isn't on the horizontal. Our solution is vertical, and that's who we look to. We may not ever know why we're going through what we're going through in the moment, but we can trust that God is good and that he is using this in some way to mature us and help us to grow like Jesus, amen? The more mature in Christ, 
we are, the more joy we will have because we will know why we face the trials that we face. They're not random or irrelevant. God intends for them to produce a specific Christ-likeness, a specific endurance in us. Paul told Timothy to endure like a good soldier. What he's saying is count it all joy like James is. He's saying, Timothy, endure like a good soldier. You, you walk through these things, you count it joy, you know that God's at work in the midst of the trial, and you just, you just endure it. You work through it. You let God do what he wants to do in the midst of it. You endure like a good soldier. James goes on to say that steadfastness in us, the steadfastness that we can know our trial is producing will produce in the life of a believer, a, 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 will produce a believer that is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The process that God is using to sanctify us is by fire. It's by fire. It's by trials. He's producing a perfect and completeness in us. This isn't talking about perfection and completeness in the sense that we will be sinless. He's not talking about moral ethics here. He's not talking about, you know, whether you're going to be you know, sinless in life. That's not what he means. He means complete and perfect immaturity in Christ. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about perfect and complete and steadfastness lacking in nothing. Oh, I could do this all day long because I am perfect and complete and I lack in nothing in Christ and I will endure like a good soldier whatever it is that I'm going through in my life. We can do that in Christ. We can do that in Christ. That's what Paul or what James is saying here is that steadfastness produces a maturity to such a degree that if we that we will lack nothing as it relates to the character of Christ. Peter said it like this in 1 Peter 5:8: be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to do, some to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to the eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When the trial is over, you're going to see God do even more amazing things than you've ever seen him do. Because he's making you complete and perfect and lacking in nothing. Paul goes on to say in, in Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings uh, produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in, the hearts of, uh, in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You get the point? You get the point? We, we can count it all joy in our various trials because... Uh, God is bringing us to a perfect and complete maturity in Christ where we lack nothing. What do we need to, to navigate through this then? How do we do this well? He goes on here to tell us in verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him, but let him ask by, in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Dealing with our trials on the horizontal require a heavenly, a vertical wisdom. 
Our horizontal trials require a vertical wisdom. We need God's wisdom to navigate through these trials uh, in in a way that uh, it won't derail us. God's intention for the trial is not to derail you, but to mature you. So many people get derailed by the trial because they don't understand it. They don't understand. I need, wor- I need God's wisdom to walk through these things. Spurgeon said the natural tendency of trouble is not to sanctify but to induce sin. A man is very apt to become unbelieving under affliction. That is a sin. He's apt to murmur against God under it. That's a sin. He's apt to put forth his hand to some ill way of escaping from his difficulty, and that would be sin. Hence, we are taught to pray, lead us not into temptation, because trial has in itself a measure of temptation, and if it were not neutralized by abundant grace, it would bear us towards sin. We need a vertical wisdom in in a horizontal trial. If we don't, we will sin. If we don't seek God, if we don't look for that that wisdom from on high, we will end up sinning because we will get our eyes on ourselves. We have to keep our eyes on the Lord. We need to seek wisdom from above. Lord, how, what do you want me to learn in this situation? God, how can I endure through this process, Lord? Give me the wisdom. How can I, uh, you know, navigate through this trial in a way that brings glory and honor to your name? I've seen many Christians get derailed in their walks as a result of a trial that God meant for their good that God meant for their good. He didn't orchestrate the trial, a broken relationship or financial destitution or some disease or something like that. God didn't necessarily create that for that person, but he allowed it. He allowed it, and if he allowed it, then he was gonna do something in the middle of it. And sometimes it's just a matter of him building us up in those moments where he becomes truly the Lord of our life. Sometimes we say he is, but he's not until we're in a place where he has to be. Listen, I don't know what's going on in your life, but, but what I know is that you need heavenly wisdom. You need the wisdom of God in order to get through these trials. How do we get that? James says, if you lack wisdom, ask the Lord, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Wisdom is what we need, and all we have to do is ask the Lord, and he'll give it to us. Are you lacking wisdom today? Are you lacking in your understanding of something today? All you have to do is ask the Lord. Lord, I need to know what's going on in this situation. He doesn't have to answer your question directly, but he will answer you. If we lack wisdom, we just need to ask him. What is wisdom? It's applied knowledge. Wisdom is applied knowledge. You know the world tells us to do? Seek knowledge. Go to college, get all the knowledge you can. Knowledge is power and all this kind of stuff. Actually, it's not. Uh, Knowledge is part of the piece of the puzzle, but one step further is wisdom. You know, if Solomon were, were to have asked for knowledge in when the Lord said, ask anything and I'll give it to you. And he said, yeah, just give me knowledge. I just want to be knowledgeable, you know. 
I want to be able to throw out random facts all the time. You know, you know the kind of person, like, it's like, that's a random fact, but cool. Uh, you must be a reader or something because that was totally random, but I, I appreciate you, brother. I love you, man. Uh, but, but, you know, if, if he would have only asked for knowledge, he wouldn't have been able to do what he did. He needed wisdom, which is applied knowledge. Uh, you know, we do need knowledge. We need, to, we need the knowledge of the Word of God. We need to know the Word of God. But more, you know, importantly is we need wisdom on how to apply the Word of God in our lives. I know people that know the Bible backwards and forwards, but their life is a wreck. Why? They're not walking in wisdom. They're seeking knowledge. God isn't looking for some intellectual assent, folks. What God is looking for is you to understand what he says, what he provides for us, and then to walk in it, which is wisdom. And he says, if you're lacking that in your life, if you don't know how to get through what it is that you're going through right now, you come to me and you ask. But you need to ask by faith. In other words, he's saying, uh, don't come asking with no expectation of me to do anything. We pray those kind of prayers sometimes. Lord, will you just heal this person? You're not going to heal this person, Lord. But will you heal him, Lord? Will you heal him right now, Lord? And then we have no, we don't believe that he's going to do that, but we're praying because that's what we're supposed to do. I'm going to say something crazy, but maybe God wouldn't even have you to pray if you're not going to pray with faith. God says you come by faith, not by doubting, because the person that comes with doubt is a double-minded person. It's a double-minded person. They're asking for something, and, and at the same time, with the same breath, they're saying, I don't believe you're going to do it. God said, you don't come to me like that. Don't come to me with a prayer of doubt. Not doubt in the sense of I'm not sure, God, but doubt in the, doubt in the sense I'm sure that you're not going to do this, God. That's what he's talking about. You know, the, the centurion said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's a totally different scenario than somebody who's double-minded, who's asking in doubt that, you know, that the Lord would do something. Totally different. God isn't afraid of your doubts. God isn't afraid of, uh, of these kinds of things. But here's the thing is that he wants you to trust him and believe in him. You got to come and ask by faith. Listen, you, when you pray, are you praying with the expectation that God is going to answer your prayer? That's a powerful prayer. That's the kind of prayer that the Lord hears and he answers as a result of faith. It's not 100% faith, though. It's also his will, what he wants to do in a certain situation. It's a combination of faith and, and God's will. You have to combine those things. But what I do know is Jesus couldn't do uh, works in his hometown because they were, uh, there was a lack of faith there. So faith plays a role in the, the ability of God to work in our lives. He says, man, if you need wisdom, ask me, but don't ask me doubtfully. That's like a double-minded person who is unstable in all his ways. In all his ways. David Guzik said it like this. He said, to ask uh, but to ask, but to ask him in a doubting way shows that we are double-minded. If we had no faith, we would never ask at all. If we had no unbelief, we would have no doubting. To be in the middle ground between faith and unbelief is to be double-minded. That, that word means double, that means two-souled. 
two-souled, you know, the concept of you're living for the world and you're trying to live for the Lord at the same time. The Lord says you can't have two masters. You can't be double-minded in that way. We have to trust the Lord and we have to come to him with expectation that he's going to meet us where we are. He wants to do that in your life. And if we come to him in that way, what's going to happen is you're going to get the wisdom you need. You're going to see what God is trying to do. And therefore, you will count it all joy as you uh, endure these various trials that you'll go through in life. That's, this is the process. And I don't think anybody gets outside of the process. There's not a quicker way around it. There's, these are the steps. He says, you come and ask. You seek me. You do these things. Don't be double-minded in it. You come with expectation of asking. And then what's going to happen is God's going to show you how to navigate through it. And you may or may not know what he's doing, but it doesn't matter because he's giving you the wisdom to walk through. And at the end of it, you're counting it joy because you know that he's doing something. Amen? Count it all joy, Christian. You can be glad this morning, even in your sorrow. You can be glad because we know that steadfastness produces character and character produces hope. We can be glad that we have a God that loves us and he's at work in our lives and that he is faithful to shape us and make us like Jesus, amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, as we close now, that as we prepare for communion, that you help us to count it all joy, Lord, in our lives. Uh, Father, we pray if there's trials that are going on in our our, our congregation this morning, Lord, no doubt, many things people are facing. We pray that you would just have your way in them, Lord, that you would help them to apply what they've heard this morning. God, we pray for those in this place, Lord, that need wisdom from on high today, that, Lord, we come by faith asking that you would infuse, Lord, the kind of wisdom necessary to navigate through the things that uh, each and every one of us are facing in our lives right now, Lord. We pray that we wouldn't blame you, but we would look to you and we would appreciate what you're trying to do in our lives to make us more like Jesus through these trials, Lord. And we ask you to just fill us with faith this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would look to Jesus. He came and died and rose again from the dead on our behalf so that we can be in this place today. And it's by faith that we believe and that our sins are forgiven. We pray for anyone in this place, Lord, is before we partake of communion, you tell us to do it in a worthy manner. That means that we need to come uh, in Christ. And so we, we ask you, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they just confess you as Lord even right now, that they turn their hearts to Jesus. Lord, and just pray this prayer, Lord, will you forgive me for my sins this morning? I want to be cleansed, Lord. I want to be washed. I've been angry with you maybe because of the things that you've allowed in my life and I've turned away from you, but I want to turn back to you today, Lord. I want to give you my life. I want to surrender myself to you. I turn away from my old life and I turn to you now, Lord. I believe that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again from the dead for me so that my sins could be forgiven, so that I can have life in that more abundantly. So I put my hope and trust in you now in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.